morning. Whenever we say God is our Father, we mean only one thing, that he's the head of the family, the head of the church, as Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Uh, today's Father's Day, uh, we have not forgotten that, and if you are a father, or at least identify as a father, we have not forgotten you. I uh, would like to acknowledge you for being a father, and at the end of the sermon, stick with me, because we're going to acknowledge you and give the token of appreciation for, your, for being a father. Now, we are, we're privileged that you are put in a very specific situation, in very specific position as a father in your families. Um, not only to head the family, but to be a great influence to your children, uh, basically to your, to your family. And for that, you deserve uh, an appreciation. So stick with me. Now, this reminds me uh, to notice that the people in Israel, whenever God calls them to occupy the land, the elders of the tribes, the soldiers, the warriors, made it possible for them to occupy the land because of the fathers. So basically, these are the people who made it possible for the nation of Israel to settle in the land. In fact, when we talk about inheritance, because we're talking about the kingdom of God, we're talking about what the fathers give to their children. So it's, it's really about related to father or fatherhood at this point. And whenever we hear the word father, we're always reminded of what Jesus taught his disciples when we address God as our Father, or Abba, Father. It's, it's a very important and very familiar symbol to us. Now, we're still in the series. It's called God's Kingdom, His, God's Plan, His Kingdom, and Its Boundaries. Today, I want to talk to you about receiving your inheritance and marking your territory. Joshua chapter 18 has something to do with that. So the question is, how do we set up guard posts? How do we mark what already God has entrusted to our care. We're talking about the territory. What is the significance of this in our Christian life? And what are the implications that we can draw from understanding that we have an inheritance and God has put boundaries in our inheritance? If you have been here for the past couple of weeks, you probably noticed that when we started talking about God's kingdom, although we made it very clear that we're talking about the specific real estate, the piece of land, the nation of Israel, we're also talking about what it means, the significance of what does it mean for the people of God to be placed inside the land of promise, the holy land. The idea behind driving out the Canaanites and living inside the holy land is for the reason of sanctity. Now, what does it mean? The Holy Land, as we're talking about, must be dedicated to worshiping only one God in the land. That's Yahweh. All right, let's put it this way. Before the, the Israelites came to the Promised Land, it was inhabited by the Canaanites. And all the ites, we mean the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, and all the ites. And these people are known to be idol worshipers. Not only that they are idol worshipers, they also sacrificed their children in the fire to Moloch. That means that they're not just idol worshippers. They are idol worshippers of sacrificing their children. And God doesn't want that to happen. So he brought all the Israelites to occupy the promised land and to drive out all the Canaanites because this land will be identified with God. There will only be one God who will be worshipped in this land. And so that's the primary reason why 
the sons of Abraham were not just given a piece of land just so that they can have their own home, but so more, but much more than that, is that God wants to have a place of His own that He can dwell with men, that He can be neighbors with the sons of Israel. Now, Joshua 18 again is about the remaining portions in the land. Uh, chapter 15 has something to do with the apportionment or the allotment to the tribes of Judah. Chapter 16 and 17 is about apportioning or allotting lands to Manasseh and Ephraim. Chapter 18, there are seven more tribes who have not yet been allotted their own inheritance or their own land. And chapter 18 deals with how do you, how do you allot land to so these seven, seven other tribes. Let me draw your attention to Joshua chapter 18 verse 1. If you have your Bibles with you or if you have your cell phones, I would even uh, at this point promote our uh, bulletin. In your bulletin, there's the passage that we're studying. There's also some spaces that you can write into sort of a notes or personal notes. Um, there's also the, the thing for Bible study that you can use for self-reflection. So I'd uh, recommend that you use it. At the back of our bulletin, <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a barcode, a QR code, we call it. When you copy this, when you uh, open your camera in your cell phones and you press onto this, it will uh, give you another website where you can find all the songs that we sang today and the sermon text and the Bible study materials. Is it cool? Cool. All right. So I'd uh, recommend that you use this. Now, Joshua chapter 18, verse 1. It says, The whole. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh or Shiloh and set up the tent of the meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. This verse 1 is sort of a, is a summary of what's ahead. It's like a putting things in context. So the people of Israel, including the seven tribes, are gathered in a land in a very specific place called Shiloh or Shiloh. Now imagine for a second that all the 12 tribes of Israel are gathered together. It's a high-level meeting, and they're discussing the next steps or the next phase of what they will do to conquer the land. What's important here is to understand the word where they're meeting at. It's called Shiloh or Shiloh. Why is this important? I'd like you to watch this very short clip. Uh, it's just a two-minute clip, but this will give us a better understanding where they are at and why they're meeting there. here to Shiloh. We are in a very important place here in the land of Israel. Tell us about Shiloh and why this place is so special. To understand Shiloh, you've got to start with a little slice of history. Everyone knows the story of the Jewish people leaving Egypt, right? Pharaoh, Mount Sinai. The Exodus, of course. You also know the story of the Jewish people going down to Egypt? Joseph did go down. Right. It's just a family. It's not the Jewish people. We started calling the Jewish people at Sinai, okay? That's where big changes happen. One of the big changes is God says, build a tabernacle. Now, 
You don't know what a tabernacle is, right? You've been in a tabernacle? Well, it's Sukkot. I think of the Feast of Tabernacles, right, of course. Right, but you've never actually been in a real tabernacle. Not the real thing. There aren't any anymore in the world. It's one of the things, a lot of the things in Shiloh just don't exist in the world anymore, okay? So to understand Shiloh, one of the things, the first things you have to understand is a tabernacle. And the tabernacle was important. Why? Okay, the tabernacle is the center. The tabernacle is the place you connect with God. And that, to understand that, you have to understand all the different pieces and how the way, all, the way they all fit together. Yeah, and now inside the tabernacle, there was a few very important objects, but one in particular, very, very important. Tell us about it. So there are two main focuses. The first one's the altar, which we can talk about a little bit. But the whole rest of the, the whole tabernacle focuses around the ark. The ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant. Where God's presence dwelt. Right. Wow. Uh, so the tabernacle, before the temple in Jerusalem, Nakum, which became the center of worship, obviously, what you're saying basically is Shiloh was the place. This was the place where people came to worship the Lord. When Shiloh exists, there is no such thing as Jerusalem. No one has ever yet said the word Yerushalayim. This is all before Jerusalem exists. There's a Jebusite city over there, and nobody cares about it. Shiloh is the focus. Shiloh is the capital at that point. Shiloh is the capital of the land of Israel, Nakum. That's amazing. In the pre-Davidic period, before King David, this was the spot. This was central in importance uh, to Israel and the Jewish people. The first temple is a little more than 400 years. The second temple is a little more than 400 years. Shiloh is the capital for almost 400 years. These are the three big periods of time. And the tabernacle, the meeting place, the Ark of the Covenant was here for how long? For 369 years. That's a quite a long run. To say this place is significant to the land of Israel, to the Jewish people in the Bible, Nakum, is an understatement, I think. Now, we think of Joshua, and as you said, you mentioned the Jewish people coming into the land. What happened here with Joshua and the tribes of Israel? They all gathered here for a very important moment. Tell us about it. Okay. First of all, after the 40 years in the desert, they crossed into the country of Jericho. And for 14 years, they're wandering around the country, settling the whole country. They finally come up here to, to divide it up and see who's going to go to what different places. So this is where the tribes of Israel uh, were divided up and where the land was basically divvied out. Correct. Correct. Wow. Now, Shiloh, obviously great biblical history. And we're going to talk more about it. Uh, Eli. Uh, Samuel, the prophet Samuel, Hannah, we're going to talk all about it. All right, so let's practically be putting in context what Shiloh is all about. Before Jerusalem, there's Shiloh. And in Shiloh, where the presence of God is, there's a tabernacle. The Hebrew word for tabernacle is Mishkan. So whenever you hear Jews say Mishkan, it's about the tabernacle. And inside the, most, inside the tabernacle is the most important piece of furniture. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is the symbol of God's presence. It's actually the throne of God. God is invisible, therefore God, you don't see God in there. But the Jews understand that this is the throne of God. Let me go back again to verse 1. It says, the land is subdued before them. The land lay subdued. But what does subdued mean? Now, this word has been repeated many times, starting from Adam. This was God's instruction to Adam when he said, go and multiply but then he also gave, gave a task to Adam to subdue the land, subdue the whole land that God has created for them. And this, excuse me, <clears throat> and this subdue was also transferred, this task was transferred to Abraham, and then it was transferred to Isaac, and to Jacob, and then to Moses, and now to the 12 tribes of Israel. So at this point, Israel has fairly accomplished the task, but not too fast. The seven remaining tribes has yet to be allotted their own inheritance. So imagine this. Uh, if you are the patriarch of a big household and you have allotted, say, for example, you have five children and you have given the two, you still have to give the other three. So at this point, the seven other tribes 
have to be given their own inheritance. Let's continue from verse 3. It says, So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? So that means, if you pause for a second, that means these seven other tribes have been holding back. What are they waiting for? So in verse 4, it says, Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land. It's very important. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me. They shall divide into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory to the south, and the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. Now, when you read this cast lots, it's, it's not about tossing coin, if it's head or tail. They used the Urim and the Tumim. It was the way God wants them to understand how they will know the will of God. So the Urim and the Tumim is, um, are two small stones that has the name of God, and they have their way of ascertaining if it's the will of God or not. Now, if you read this, uh, chap- chapter 18, verses 3 to 8, it's like a straightforward narrative where it tells you what they have to do and what you can expect from the narrative. It tells you exactly what needed to be done. But the language here is very definitive. Because the scripture says, they may set out and go up and down. Let's underline that. They may set up and go up and down. That word, that phrase, sorry, up and down, is very interesting. Um, What this means is that this is an image where they will have to be thoroughly and meticulously describing going up and down the valleys and the hills and the valleys and the hills because the, the territory of Israel are mountainous and have so many valleys. So God is, Joshua is saying, you have to go all the way to the north, go up and down the valleys and the mountains, and you will have to describe everything that you see, the tents, the enclaves, the dwellings, the outposts, the cities. You have to make a careful like mapping the, mapping the whole land of Israel. Careful description of what it looks, looks like. Now, in particular, uh, very interesting here. Although the phrase may go up and down is a phrase, but in Hebrew, it's just one word. The word for this is vayit halek. Vayit halek. Now, it has nothing to do when you love your wife, husbands, and you want to say, I love you, and then you halek. <laughs> nothing to do with that. Vayetalek is going up and down. Yeah, exactly, exactly that. This word simply means, it's a reflexive form. It means to go back and forth, to go to and fro. So there's a movement here of going and walking. Vayetalek. Now, I remember when my uh, youngest, yeah, my, my youngest was born, we rushed to the hospital because she's premature. So we went to the hospital. And while Kat is being prepared in the labor room, I was outside. I was asked to wear a, a blue gown. Um, I was sweaty. I was excited. Uh, I was nervous at the same time, and I don't know what to expect, but I just know that, you know, she, she needs to be taken care of. So I was outside the room. I was with that blue gown, and I found myself walking back and forth. I cannot help myself. So the neuroscientists say that the way to relieve our stress is that we have to, we have to walk back and forth. That's how we do it, uh, naturally. 
That's why there's a phrase about being on your, on your feet. That's the idea here, to relieve that stress. And I found myself that night, uh, December, December 8th, I was walking back and forth outside the delivery room. This is the, the picture of what Joshua wants the spies to do for the seven other tribes, to vayitelek, to go up and down. So when Joshua instructed them, he was telling them, you have to go up and down the mountains and the valleys and all the terrains. You will have to see everything that God has in store for you. It's like inspecting your own territory. You're not guests here anymore. That's what he's trying to say. You own the land, but you have to inspect the land. This is the, the picture of when you first bought your house, what you did was you went to the property, you tried to see everything, every nook and cranny, you have to see it. You went to the bedroom, you went to the bathroom, you went to the basement, if it has a basement. You even look at the attic, you went under the sink. You try to look at the whole property when you intend to buy that house. Why? Because it's going to be your house. You're interested in your property. So this is what Joshua is telling the other seven tribes, to inspect the land and see what it looks like. If this is really the land of milk and honey. Now, what's interesting here and more fascinating is that this word, vayithalek, or halek, was first mentioned in Genesis chapter 3. This is interesting. So we know that Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat from the fruit tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Are you still with me? So they were forbidden, but we all know what happened. They ate from this tree. And so at the moment they ate, according to the Bible, their eyes were opened, they saw themselves naked, and they hid themselves. And they made fig leaves for clothes. And then it says in verse 8, very interestingly, listen to this. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. That's mithalek, walking in the garden. In the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. As the spies are doing bit vayithalek, God was walking in the gardens, literally, mithalek. Interesting. Why was God walking in the garden? Because He owns the place. He's the owner of the Garden of Eden. Now, if He owns the Garden of Eden, He has every right to walk on His property. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> this is across cultures, and it, regardless of whether you came from, we respect this, and we understand that this is what we do naturally. When you go and visit a friend, you go to his house, you knock on the door, you sit down. What you do is to act like a guest. Even if you identify as the owner, you cannot because you're a guest. We cannot erase that fact. You're a guest. And no matter how close you are to the owner, you cannot pretend to be the owner of the house. What you do is that you don't go straight to the bedroom and change clothes and lie on the bed. You don't do that. You don't go straight to the kitchen, open the fridge, slice some apples. You don't do that. Right? Why? Because we are guests. But it's different now. After the worship service, you go home, you open your door, and the moment you open your door, you feel at home. Why? Because it's your house. What you can do is you open the fridge, get some water, relax, or you can even pick up the remote, the TV remote control, even put your feet up the couch, because it's your house. The people of Israel, according to Joshua, is said to be to have to go up and down by Yitalek because it's their property now. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. God walking in the garden because it was his property. He was comfortable in his own property. 
Now, interestingly, <clears throat> when the Bible said that God was walking in the garden, it was literal. God was walking in the garden. But we didn't know, of course, because for one, God is invisible. We were not there in the first place to see it. But what's fascinating is that in the book of Deuteronomy, there was this sort of a policy or rule about cleanliness. Very interesting. I, I'm not sure if you've seen it. But whenever the Israelites are camped, the idea is that the tabernacle or the mishkan is always in the center of the camp. So imagine two million people, all tents there. And in the middle of the camp is the mishkan, the tabernacle. Inside the mishkan is the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, the throne of God. So that means invisibly God is there dwelling among men. There's this certain rule that's so interesting that is related to God walking in the garden. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 12 to 14, it says, You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it. What are you going to do there? You shall have a trowel with your tools. When you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. You can imagine what they're doing. In the middle of the night or in the middle of the day, you cannot just dump anywhere. Are you getting the picture? There must be a certain place, only a certain place, where they can dump what they already ate and they have to dig a hole and cover it. It's important that they cover it. Why? In verse 14, it says, Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. Mithalek. To deliver you and give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that you may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. What this verse is saying is that God walks in the midst. There again, it's word mithalek. The camp must be made holy because in the middle of the camp stood the tabernacle, the mishkan, where the presence of God is. I can imagine what this is saying, as if in the afternoon, God takes a stroll every afternoon, inspecting all the people of Israel, like a father enjoying his afternoon with his children. This is the picture of Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 23. And if you bring this idea a little bit further, this idea of God walking and dwelling among men, if we take it more literally, we will have to go with John. In John chapter 1, verse 14, this is what John said. In the NIV, it says, The Word became flesh, and He made His dwelling. Dwelling is the word for mishkan, or tabernacle. So, the Word made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son, whom the Father, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, two words here. Number one, dwelling is mishkan, tabernacle. Number two is glory. In Hebrew, it's the word Shekinah or Shekinah glory. What is this glory all about? The Hebrew calls this Shekinah glory. This is the glory or this is the visible presence of God when Solomon finished building the temple and they inaugurated the temple. The Bible said that the presence of God filled the temple. The glory of the Lord filled the temple in a way that visibly the Israelites saw a thick smoke inside the temple. The smoke represents the glory of God. In fact, what the Bible said in First Kings is that the priests cannot minister inside the temple because it was filled with smoke. That's the glory of God there. That's the Shekinah glory. This is what John is saying here. 
the Word became flesh and dwelt, Mishkan, tabernacle in the flesh, and we saw the glory, the Shekinah the glory of God. Now, what's interesting here is that this is not made with bricks and stones. This Word who became flesh is made with human flesh. The temple, the new temple, has become flesh. That was, that's what John is saying. The three other disciples, Peter, James, and John, went to the mountain with Jesus. And they saw Jesus transfigured, Luke chapter 9. And they saw the glory of God. They saw the same Shekinah glory that was seen inside the temple in Solomon's time. They saw it in Jesus when Jesus was transformed into a bright light. Shekinah glory. There's another guy in the Old Testament who saw the glory, but not literally. He saw it in a vision. His name is Ezekiel. Not sure if you heard about him, but this guy is a very strict guy. He had a lot of visions. Uh, but this guy, Ezekiel, is a prophet. Now, it came to a point in his time that the people have become so idolatrous and so rebellious that God had said, it's enough, I'm going to give you a punishment now. At that time, the nation of Israel was in split into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It's just like North and South Korea. But God said, this is, this is not right. So I'm going to give you a lesson, teach you a lesson here. So he sent the Assyrian army towards the northern kingdom and brought the northern inhabitants of the land exiled towards Assyria, somewhere in Iraq and Iran, that area. That's the northern kingdom. And Ezekiel was one of those that were placed in exile in the Assyrian empire. In exile while he lives, he had a vision from the Lord. He received this very strange vision. And in his vision, he saw himself inside the most holy place because he saw the cherubim. He was describing in the vision where he was in the most holy place and the cherubims are moving, not just, you know, on top of the, the Ark of the Covenant, there are cherubim. So he, what he saw in the vision is that there are cherubims and they're moving. And this is his description of the Shekinah glory of God in Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. He said, Then the Lord, sorry, then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out, with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of God of Israel was over them. This gate of the house of the Lord on the east is the same gate that Jesus entered in the triumphal entry. What, what Ezekiel is saying is that in his vision, he saw the Shekinah glory of the Lord departed from the temple to, towards the east gate, going to the to Kibron Valley. Now, this is very interesting because what he's saying is that Essentially, God departed from the place. That means the place, the temple, is not sacred anymore. God has abandoned this house. That's what he's trying to say. When he said that the glory of God has departed from the place, what he's saying is God is not there anymore. The presence of God is not there anymore. So there's no more myth halek. God is not walking among their myths anymore. There's no more vayit halek. God is not walking up and down anymore. God has abandoned the place. After 136 years, the Babylonians came, destroyed the temple, looted the temple, and took the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God, and brought them to Babylon. According to many sources, either it's, it was destroyed or it was kept in Babylon, and it's lost forever. 
Now, after 136 years, God spoke to another prophet by the name of Jeremiah. And this is what God said through Jeremiah. This is very telling because it mentions the word Shiloh again. Jeremiah 7, 12 to 15. It says, Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because of you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Now, what's interesting here is that before Jerusalem, the Ark of the Covenant, the Mishkan, is in Shiloh. Shiloh is in Ephraim. This was the part of the northern kingdom that the Assyrian army attacked before Jerusalem. Now, what God is saying here through the prophet Jeremiah is that I've given you a lesson, but you did not heed the lesson. Therefore, I will do to you what I intend to do to them. God was warning Judah. Now, after the exile, this is how the Jewish encyclopedia describes the second temple. After 70 years, you know the history, they were able to go back to the promised land, build another temple, a smaller one, and then Herod renovated it in the time of Jesus Christ. According to the Jewish encyclopedia, it says, according to Josephus, Josephus is a Hebrew historian, the temple, this contained nothing, nada, zero, zilch, nothing. The temple, the second temple, has nothing inside. Interesting. According to the Babylonian Talmud, the second temple lacked five things, which had been in the Solomon's temple, namely, there was no ark, there was no sacred fire, there was no Shekinah glory, there was no Holy Spirit, there was no Urim and Thummim. What the second temple has is nothing, just the altar outside the temple. What does that mean? What does it mean for the temple to have nothing? Now, this is the same temple that Jesus went to in the book of John twice, in John chapter 2 and John chapter 19. The first time he entered there, he went inside the temple because there were so many pigeons and cattle and you know, animal sacrifices that the people are, are offering to God. And there are money changes there. And, and Jesus drove them out of the temple. Why would Jesus do that? What he practically did is to stop all the animal sacrifices. Now, if you read the book of Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, God is saying it must be a daily sacrifice. What Jesus did is to stop the daily sacrifice. Why would Jesus do that? Jesus is practically saying, there's nobody inside the house accepting your sacrifice. There's nobody in here. You're just exchanging money. You are just sacrificing animals, but there's no one inside the house of God. Why? Because God is not in there. It's just a representation of where you have to pray. There's no God in there. So the people asked for his authority. I mean, they understood that the Levites who were not given their own portion of the land were in charge of the temple, in charge of the tabernacle and then the temple. But Jesus is now a Levite. 
They also understood in Jesus' time that the Sanhedrin, the council, is in charge of the animal sacrifices. But Jesus is not part of the Sanhedrin. They also understood that the chief priests are the one in charge of the animal sacrifices. But Jesus is not the high priest. So who is Jesus? They're practically saying, who are you and what are your credentials? Very interestingly and fascinatingly, Jesus answered them in a different way. He said in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's a different way to answer it. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, John has to clarify that what Jesus meant was not the physical temple. Again, we're not talking really about the peace, the real, the real state. We're talking about what it represents. So John is saying, hey, this is not about the temple. This is about Jesus and what it represents. So in verse 21, he said, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That means when Jesus rose from the dead, a new temple was raised, a new mishkan, a new tabernacle. So the coming of Jesus is a different way of building the temple. You know, this is interesting because when they were in exile in Babylon, all the prophets were prophesying, God will bring you back to the land and he will raise a new temple. And all they thought that God wanted them to raise another temple, so they built another temple. But the truth is, that's not the temple that God wants. Because that kind of temple, the building of bricks and stones, is a temple that can be abused, misrepresented. What God has in mind is a different kind of temple. And that's the temple that dwelt in John chapter 1, verse 14. A new tabernacle, a new miskan. And yet the people still tried to break this temple, to destroy this temple. So on Sabbath day, before Sabbath day, Jesus Christ was crucified. And then after three days, he raised a new temple that cannot be destroyed, that's not made with bricks and stones, but made with incorruptible human flesh. This is a glorious, glorious body that we will have in the future. And this is the body that Jesus had in his resurrection day. Now, what's interesting here is this. Sunday morning, resurrection day. Jesus rose from the dead. The Marys went to the tomb, and when they went to the tomb, they saw it was empty. And so they ran back, told Peter. Peter came running, and when he got there, he saw it was empty. And Mary stayed there. John, John uh, chapter 20 says she was crying because probably she missed Jesus. And what's fascinating here is that Jesus appeared to him, to her. Jesus appeared to her, but she did not recognize Jesus. Now, this is what it says in John chapter 20, verse 15. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And then John adds another commentary. He said, supposing him to be a gardener. That's an odd way to put a commentary. Why would John say, supposing him to be the gardener? Why would Mary suppose Jesus or assume that he's a gardener? Why didn't she recognize Jesus? Because what John is trying to do is to put us back in the time of the creation story, Genesis chapter 2, 
where God created the Garden of Eden and raised Adam from the ground, breathed into him the breath of life, and put him in that place where God will dwell with man. John is trying to put us in the same location. So John chapter 20 and Genesis chapter 2 have to be read together. John is trying to help us there. So he's saying, when he adds the commentary, supposing him to be the gardener, because the official title of Adam was a gardener. He must keep the land, subdue the land, keep it. Gardener. The Garden of Eden. It makes sense. Now, what God is saying here, what John is saying here, if you continue the story, right after he showed himself to Mary, the disciples were in Jerusalem. They, they were staying in the upper room because they were so afraid that, you know, what happened to Jesus might also happen to them. So they closed the doors. They were meeting in secret. They were so afraid. And suddenly the Bible said that Jesus appeared to them in the middle of them. That was very shocking. John chapter 20, verse 22. And what's interesting is what Jesus did. He said, peace be with you. And then he showed his hands and his feet, the marks of his crucifixion. Now, that's not really the interesting part. The interesting part is that he repeated that. And he said, another one, peace be with you. And then in verse 22, John said, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Why would Jesus, what's the gesture all about? Why would Jesus breathe on them? Like, I think you're cold. Is it what Jesus did? He breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to put yourself to read this in the context of Genesis chapter 2. God formed Adam from the ground. It was from the ground. Adama is ground. That's why his name is Adam. And God breathed on him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Jesus is doing the same thing. He was walking like God, Mithalek, in the garden, and now Jesus is breathing on his disciples the breath of life, Zoe, the Holy Spirit. God is duplicating what the Father did. See, see this beautiful thing about fathers and, and sons? He's doing only what he sees the Father doing. He's recreating. That's why Apostle Paul said, didn't you know that we are a new creation? Jesus Christ created again through his first disciples. If you believe in Jesus, if you follow Jesus, if you identify with Jesus, the Bible said we are a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And you know what a new creation is? We are called the Messiah people because we follow the Messiah. What does do the Messiah people do? Joshua chapter 18. Vayithalek. So the spies were, were commanded to go up and down to inspect their inheritance. Vayithalek. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 28 before he went to heaven? All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go. Go where? Into all nations. That's a different language, but the same thing. Vayithalek. Go into all nations and make disciples. Teach them everything I have commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Vayithalek. It's very interesting because the language may be different, but the thought is the same. This is the new language of subduing the land, going into your inheritance. See, we have, not, we have no stake in Israel. 
we cannot own a piece of property in Israel. We cannot have that claim because by blood we are not Jews. But we have a different inheritance in Jesus. We were recreated anew. That means, that means the place you go to five days a week or seven days a week is your world. That means the people you meet is your world. That means the place you go to is your world. And as Messiah people, we are commanded by Jesus Christ to go up and down by it like, like we owe the place. Like this is our place and we are comfortable going there, going back here because we own this place. This is our inheritance. That means we must be involved in our community. So when was the last time you watched, you opened an internet or you watched TV and heard the news? Do you know what's happening in our community? Do you know what's happening at Broward County? Do you know what's happening in South Florida? See, if you live in this place, if we live in this place as a church, we have to be involved in the community. We cannot just go to work and then go home, watch television, and enjoy the telenovela. You cannot just do that. Because there's a task ahead of us. We have a calling to do. Inspect the land as if it's ours. Go up and down because this is what Jesus wants us to make disciples of all nations whenever we are. A very simple thing that we can do is to pray for them, pray for the community, pray for the people who are in charge of running our everyday affairs in the community. We have to get involved. See, we cannot just stay like this forever, like, you know, us. We have to fill in the seats. And the only way we can fill in the seats if we connect with our community. We have to do that. This week, uh, I was in a meeting with Converge Pastors um, in the Church United in Fort Lauderdale. And there's the only, only time that I learned and realized that all the churches here in Broward County has an organization. We really have no competition here. They said that according to the George Barner statistics, only 4 to 5% of all the Broward population is, is Christian. 5%, imagine that. That means even if we put up 1,000 more churches in Broward County, we have no competition here. There are still lost souls to reach out. Do you say amen to that? I mean, we go out after this worship service, a lot of people be watching movies, enjoying themselves. I mean, anytime God can come back, Jesus can come back. This is the community where God put us. We have to invest in this community. We have to think of ways how we can involve ourselves and pray for this community. At least, emotionally, we have to invest on this and pray for them. least that we can do is that. Because you are the best person to imagine what it looks like to vayit If your world is your home, your workplace, your community, this is your world. This is where God's calling us. Anyone here, God's calling to go to Africa? No? How about go, go to Somalia? No? Go to South America? No. I don't think so. I think God calls us here for a specific purpose. I came all the way from Arizona. You came all the way from maybe the Philippines, directly from other states. And God put us here as a church. There must be a reason why, as a church, we are here. Let's reflect on that. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you so much for 
the privilege of being part of this church, part of this community where you have put us. Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity that we can speak our minds, that we can speak our faith to people without being discriminated. We may be hard-pressed with the language barrier, but Father, I pray that you put the same passion, the same spirit in our hearts. And when it's burning, it doesn't matter what language we use. What matters is that we are passionate to proclaim your goodness in our lives. And even if it just simply means asking another person if we can pray for them, Father, I pray that you will give us that audacity, that boldness, that confidence that we can always do this to anyone because this is where you put us. This is the land, our inheritance. And you called us to Vanita Lake, to go up and down, to inspect this place as our own. Give us, Father, confidence. In Jesus' name we pray.